Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit. My name is Rob, and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. My name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. If you'd like to chat with us away from our episodes or drop us a line, our brand new title music, which is going to carry us all the way through to the end of Game of Thrones, is by my friend Ed Thomas. You can find a link to all of his other work in the show notes. A little announcement this week that our, the second part of our interview with Miltos Yerolemu has actually been turned into an article on winteriscoming.net. Winteriscoming.net covered uh, rather a lot of the show during its run and is still continuing to cover uh, pop culture and will be covering House of the Dragon, I'm sure, when it comes out. Um, so you can go and check that out. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, I've joined the team there, which is nice. Uh, I always read their articles when I was watching the show, and now I get to write some. So uh, I'll post links to those whenever they come up. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 4, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones, entitled Oathkeeper. The episode was written by Brian Cogman and directed by Michelle McLaren. It was first broadcast on the 27th of April 2014 to 6.95 million people, which made it the most watched episode of the show so far. Uh, Lizzie, what are your thoughts on this episode? Because we had some interesting messages after we watched the episode. Yeah, we did. Yeah, so tell me about it. Yeah. Um, Well, my position on it hasn't really changed from then either. It's a weird episode. It's It's not a bad episode by any means, but there's some kind of confusing character moments in this that make it, I think, less consistent than the previous episodes we've had in the season so far. When you say that the uh, that it has some strange character moments, which ones are you thinking of? Well, particularly Jamie. Um, I'm sorry to keep bringing this up, but in this episode, he's almost playing the part of like Tyrion, even though you know Tyrion's in prison. But he's the sort of level-headed Lannister, and he's sort of filling this role, like trying to mediate between several people, but. It seems like a huge elephant in the room, considering what we just saw him do, kind of last week. It, you know, it feels a bit sudden. As much as they've they've done a good job of rehabilitating his character, it feels like they've taken a giant step back last week, and now it's like we're expected to just think nothing has happened. Yeah, it's a little bit of a strange one. The way that over the years I've kind of squared it in my head is that. Last week, in terms of the story, Jamie hasn't done anything wrong. It's the way that the film, uh, it's the way that the scene was filmed that clearly coded it as something wrong. But in in the story, inverted commas, Jamie and Cersei slept together in a strange position next to Joffrey's dead body, whereas we all saw it because it was directed in such a way that the what they intended for the scene did not come across and made it look like a, a dark rape scene whereas in the story Jamie hasn't mm. actually done that and so in their minds in the writers minds they're just carrying on 
even in the book, it's kind of like it's verging on it. As much as I know that in the book, it's kind of a no that turns into a yes. It was still a no initially. Yes. So it's still, you know, you're you're treading a fine line there. Mm-hmm. And I know what you mean and about so, it being a, an elephant in the room. Yeah, and also, um, um, we'll obviously get into this, but there's a scene later on with Cersei and Jamie, and you can tell there's a lot of resentment there. So it's not like it's gone entirely, but it just feels odd to have Jamie being the one sort of cavorting around and being Mr. Everyman all of a sudden. Mm. I think aside from that, though, um, it's it's a, I think it's a good episode. I think it's kind of subdued compared to the first few weeks of the season. feels like it's nudged mm. us on a little bit. Uh, we get a couple of big reveals, like a Lady Olena being behind the poisoning in some way, uh, mm. that the White Walkers are headed by this general who turns Craster's babies into other White Walker things. But I do think that the episode kind of revels in and enjoys misery a bit too much. I think all the stuff uh Carl the Craster's uh, keep all the Carl Tanner stuff is a bit strong. Um it to the point where he doesn't really feel like a real person when he's going on with himself about like yeah, who yeah. he used to be yeah. and like how everyone worships him and how he's a god and all of this. It's just like it's too much. I think it is it it's too strong. And I can say that with hindsight is that there's a reason they're doing this and like I mean, Lizzie, I'm pretty sure you know what's coming next week. But, yeah, I think that it's a, a good... I think, I, think, I think it's a good one. I think it's a good one. There's lots of good stuff in it, but I think that a couple of things do drag it down a little bit. And that's the cost per case. It's Outside Marine City Walls, Missande teaches Grey Worm how to speak uh, the common tongue. Uh, then Grey Worm leads the city slaves in a revolt against the masters, which happens quite quickly, and it means that Daenerys is able to set up shop in the Great uh, Great Pyramid and start flying the Targaryen flag. Uh, later, as a response to finding 163 crucified slave children on the road to Marine, Daenerys crucifies 163 masters in turn and declares that she will answer injustice with justice. Uh, she's warned against this by Sebastian, but carries out the order anyway. Um, what do you make of the stuff in Marine? I think I'd like to talk about the opening scene before we get into the meet with... Uh, Daenerys, but I thought it was really sweet um, to see Missande and Grey Worm getting like a a mini storyline all of their own. What what about you? Yeah, I actually kind of thought the stuff at Marine this week was the strongest stuff of the episode. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I liked that someone other than Daenerys was taking charge, and we, we haven't really seen much in the way of development of Grey Worm. Even though he is this fascinating character, this sort of um, enigma in the um, the Daenerys camp, let's call it. And yeah, it's it can become a bit tiresome when Daenerys dominates these scenes, and it also feels like he hasn't really had you know the opportunity to take that role. And especially now Dario's turned up, it feels like he's been cast aside a little bit. But yeah, he's the perfect person to have 
in these setup scenes for the uprising because, you know, he has experience of being slave. And so, of course, he can speak to the people of Marine and say, look, I was I was like you once and it can be different. It doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that it's with Grey Worm, it's, it means that we have a character who can talk to the slaves and it means that the slaves mm. actually get some dialogue. They're people with yeah, perspectives, yeah, yeah. which is not something that's really happened in Daenerys' storyline so far. The slaves have just kind of said, Misa, Misa, and that's kind of it. Whereas in this episode, yeah. there's more of a an argument about like, oh, well, we've tried this before and we just end up in chains again. Or like mm. um, they, they say, well, you know, why not try this time? Because we have an army behind us and we have a queen supporting us. It's not just something we've planned to do. It's something that we can... You know, we, we we've got real support this time, and yeah, no, I thought that the scene in sort of like in the catacombs underneath the city that was that was really good stuff, and I think that Grey Worms, uh, Grey Worms are really good. I don't really know what the word is. Uh, I wouldn't say conduit, but like he's a good person. He's a familiar face now that we can stick into these kinds of scenarios and watch. Uh, ultimately nameless characters bounce off him and he it means that a bit of personality is brought out of them and i think it's a really good opening uh, i agree i've actually written it down that i think it's a really super opening um happens a little quickly and bloodlessly for my uh, for my taste really i think that um in a situation like this it's probably more grisly than uh it's depicted on screen but then i think we actually get to the more grisly stuff later on um i want to ask you about this um with Daenerys's decision to crucify the masters what 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 do you make of a decision to do that I kind of agree that it's a little bit sudden it feels like we jumped from point A to point B very quickly you know and it feels like i don't know the span of an episode and Daenerys suddenly has control of this city with 163 masters mm. but um I think beside that complaint, I did I did particularly like Barristan expressing some doubt about her plan to crucify the Masters' revenge. Like, what uh, what is it he says? When she says she wants to respond to injustice with justice, but there's that old um, argument about an eye for an eye, and does it make everybody blind? And it's, it it seems like a sensible strategy in the moment, but it's not particularly sustainable. Yeah, I like the fact that um, the the two polar points of this story this week, which is all the stuff beyond the wall and at Castle Black and all the stuff in Marine, um, mm. where there's this idea of the characters kind of deluding themselves into thinking that revenge is justice and retaliation is justice, because yeah, yeah. John kind of does the same thing at Castle Black, where he's sort of saying that, oh, it's not about justice and it's not about this, it's about, like stopping him giving secrets to Mance Raider and stuff. But obviously there's a part of him that's like, actually, no, I do just want to kill these guys because they killed my Lord Commander and we have to... Because like, John wasn't even there. John was off with the Wildlings and he's obviously just found out about this afterwards. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. now he's... So he has that feeling of revenge and Daenerys has that feeling of wanting revenge. And it's both... Uh, they're, they're both their causes are worthwhile, I think, but... Yeah, who's to say what's justice and who's to say what isn't? And what is justice, really? And what does it look like in this kind of world? And usually it just kind of means mm. 
blood and revenge and in Daenerys's case it looks like 163 people being crucified along the walls of the city <laughs> yeah it's a bit much isn't it it is a lot um but it's not like this like i was saying quite a lot of this season does uh, interrogate Daenerys now she's in a position of responsibility and it starts to ask hey now you've got responsibility what are you going to do with it and so i think we'll we'll get into that more in future weeks marrying a targaryen was all the rage back then but the moment i saw my intended with his twitchy little ferret face and ludicrous silver hair i knew he wouldn't do so the evening before Luther was to propose to my sister, I got lost on my way back from my embroidery lesson and happened upon his chamber. <laughs> How absent-minded of me. Mm-hmm. The following morning, Luther never made it down the stairs to propose to my sister because the boy couldn't bloody walk. <laughs> Alright then, in King's Landing, after continuing his sword lessons with Bronn, Jamie visits Tyrion in his cell and deduces that he didn't kill Joffrey, uh, visits Cersei, who chastises him for visiting Tyrion. Uh, later on, Jamie then gives Brienne some new armour and a new sword, and the new sword is named Oathkeeper, and then he sends her on a new mission, which is to find Sansa Stark and Arya if he can find her, if she can find her, and escort her to Winterfell uh, and Podrick is now Brienne's new squire. Um, Elsewhere in the capital, Lady Olena reveals to Marjorie that she had a hand in Joffrey's poisoning and tells Marjorie to start influencing Tommen before Cersei has a chance to turn him against her. Marjorie later visits Tommen in his chambers at night. Um, I think there's some, like you say, apart from the elephant in the room, I think that if you are to take last week uh away if you sort of watch this king's landing stuff in isolation i think you get some really good stuff this week i think it's a nice little send-off for brienne and jamie's storyline uh, i think you get a good conversation uh with Tyrion and jamie in the episode uh you get a funny little scene with uh lady olena and marjorie that then turns into quite a big reveal um you get Sir Pounce, the appearance of Sir Pounce, and so there's some there's some good there's some yeah, good, yeah. there's some good content in King's Landing this week. Um what are your uh, more before we get into the elephant in the room, what are your positive notes about the King's Landing stuff? If you have any. Yeah, no, I agree with you that in you know, in in isolation, these would have been great scenes, I think. But I think it is just that cloud overhanging the whole Jamie arc at the minute that just puts a bit of a sour note on everything um, but yeah I liked um, Podrick calling Brienne sir it's like yes more of that please <laughs> um, and, and more of them I hope I hope it isn't just you know so long and on your way we don't see them again I'm sure they will come back but you never know in this university yeah you never know um, how long the characters are going to be away for if they do go away yeah yeah exactly I also liked, um, I mentioned before, Jamie and Cersei, that tense little scene they had hmm. where, again, it, it doesn't feel like, in, you know, in previous scenes they've had this sort of closeness that they've always fallen back on. And now it does it does genuinely feel like they've, you know, they've, they're at a crossroads and they're drifting apart from one another. You know, Cersei refers to him just as Lord Commander when he leaves the room. It's like you can't even call your brother by his name yes i like the fact that you've picked up on um 
this idea that usually in the first season, if they had an argument, they just kind of fall mm. back into their old habits and that sort of thing. But things have changed between them. Jamie's been away for two seasons, and yeah, yeah. Now the last last week again, I'm not again. It, it, I think it's more a more of an issue with last week than this week really, which is that last week I think things were so poorly communicated that you can read Cersei's feelings in this scene. A million ways and one which is that Cersei could be mm. angry because she's just angry with Jamie for being away for so long um you could say that she's angry because um she believes that she that he's raped her um you could say that she's angry because she I don't know because he, he, she was happy to have sex with Jamie but like it was by Joffrey's body and also her son is also dead and all, uh, well, that's it. That's what I was going to say. She's angry because she's grieving and her family are already ignoring her. Yeah. Like, she's not even there. Yeah, she is on her own this week. Uh, Tywin's uh, kind of conspicuous by his absence for most of this week, I think. Uh, not really yeah, involved yeah. very much. Um, I think that, um, like you say, as much as there's no direct references, I still think there's a lot of ill feeling between the two of them. Um I think that away from Jamie and Cersei, I think that the chat with Jamie and Tyrion's quite good this week. I think that there's a good kind of brotherly bond building there that they've uh, not really given much screen time to, if you think about it, because I think that might be no, why no, yeah. there's a bit of a rush going on here, because Jamie's been away mm. from Tyrion uh, since the first episode. It's definitely been a long time. Oh, God. Um, yeah, yeah. And so we've not really seen them on screen together, and so I, th- I think that there's a lot of quick groundwork being done here to establish the fact that Tyrion and Jamie are brothers all over again. And so it might seem like in this weird little bit of the story where I think uh, we'll talk about it more at the end of this season when I can talk about the future more and talk about this season a bit more. But this is like a very odd point in the Game of Thrones story as opposed to the A Song of Ice and Fire story where they're just kind of testing the waters with going their own way and setting things up to go off on the show's own direction and little things like that. It just means we're in this weird, these next, the the previous episode, this episode or the next one, kind of in this weird holding pattern where things happen, but... Things, some things happen too quickly and other things happen a bit too slowly and it's just a bit of an odd juggling act where I think that it, they're kind of yeah. leaving the source material... They're not leaving the source material behind by any means because the second half of the season is like straight back to the books. Um, no mm. messing around there or anything like that. But um, it's just that they're doing little things where they're, they're tying up little things and then opening up other things as well. And it's just this odd holding pattern. And I think in this odd holding pattern, you're going to get things like Jamie acting very, you know, one side of Jamie's character kind of lurching out of the screen in one scene and then the other side of Jamie's character kind of lurching out in this one. And, that you know, you could say that, you know, people contain multitudes, that people who seem nice up front can be quite dark behind closed doors and stuff like that but I don't think that the the scenes are supposed to be communicating that kind of thing I think if you were being very generous you could just say that well Jamie's just a normal human being who is capable of terrible things as he is good with uh, as he is capable of nice things but um mm. it just means that you're going to get a bit of jumping around and I think the King's Landing stuff at the moment isn't uh suffering from it but it is being hampered by it ever so slightly um yeah 
Yeah. So I think that if you have it in your mind that in the context of the story for this episode is that as far as the writers are concerned at this point, it was a complicated sex scene as opposed to a rape scene. And so if they take it as a complicated sex scene, it's easier to flow from one episode to the next, obviously because 90% of the audience understood that they clearly hadn't... If the, if that's what they wanted to say, that it was a complicated sex scene, then they didn't say it very well, they made it more complicated, and not in a good way, um, then it's hard, as you are experiencing, it's hard to square Jamie's behaviour in this episode with his behaviour in the previous one. But, um, like I said, I think it's just a consequence of the show juggling a couple of plates at the moment to set things up for the end of this bit of the, the story, if you will. Um... I did want to mention um, that Brienne gets given blue armour in this episode. This was something that Brian Cogman, the writer, insisted upon because Brian Cogman is... Um, he was initially hired as, like, the the guru of the books, if you will. Like, he was going to be advisor. Mm. Um, but then, you know, he became a writer on the show and so we got to make little decisions, like uh, giving Brienne blue armour. He was only talking about this very recently. Uh, there's a blue armour Brienne Funko pop thing that you can collect. And uh, Brian Cogman was saying, it's a shame I never got to collect this one because it was part of like a limited edition thing. Um, where he said that he also wrote Brienne's introduction, which was season two, episode three, What is Dead May Never Die. And he put in the script, he described her as the Blue Knight, because obviously you're not supposed to know who Brienne is before she whips her helmet off in that first scene, because it's like, oh, it's a woman. Oh. And um, so he wrote her as the Blue Knight, but then when he turned up on set, she okay. had gold armor. And oh, he wasn't, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously he wasn't angry about it, but inside he was a bit like, oh, I wanted her to be the Blue Knight. <laughs> so when he got the chance to write this episode and give her some new armor, he was like, right, I'm making it blue. I insist don't steal this from me, don't give her gold armour again, and so she gets her more signature blue look, this kind of streamlined, cool blue armour uh, that she's got on now. Um, and uh, you are right to look forward to what Pod and Brienne do together. Uh, they are another good odd couple, I think. This show is brilliant at just putting odd couples together. Like, even absolutely, even yeah. in this episode, you've got, like, Jamie and Bronn have suddenly been paired together, and they're quite fun together. Um, and yep. you've got the Hound and Arya. They're not in this episode, but the Hound and Arya wandering about the Riverlands. Uh, now you've got another uh, Podrick and another one, which is Podrick and Brienne, where it's like you have this kind of very friendly, shy, polite, mild-mannered Podrick who will never ever speak out of turn and barely speak if you ask him. Whereas Brienne is quite uh, strong and she has um, vulnerabilities herself and lots of insecurities, but she defends those vulnerabilities and insecurities with this very tough demeanor and it means that you know that the, the, there's really good contrasts and there's another good pair of contrasts being sent out on the road again and um you, you do see them a fair bit on the road together lizzie you you'll be happy to oh, know good good glad to hear it did you kill joffrey did i kill joffrey i've been in the veil for weeks I know it was you. And who helped me with this conspiracy? Well, there was Sodontus. You used him to get me out of King's Landing, but you would never trust him to kill the king. Why not? Because you're too smart to trust a drunk. Then perhaps it was your husband. No. 
do you know? It just do. So in the narrow sea, uh, Littlefinger tells Sansa that he has also had a hand in Joffrey's murder because his relationship with the Lannisters had run its course and was no longer as valuable to him as his new relationship is with the Tyrells. And he tells Sansa that he's planning to escort her to the Eyrie, where he is to marry her Aunt Lysa. Um, there's another grim angle to the Littlefinger-Sansa relationship now, isn't there? Um, when he puts the hand on the shoulder and she's like, ooh... Um, what do you make of the Littlefinger Sansa stuff this week? It just it just strikes me as a bit creepy this week. Um, I feel bad because I've only written one note and it's just in big letters, exposition. Yes, uh, yeah, big exposition scene. Um, although I do like the line with the uh, the whole "a man with no motive is a man no one suspects." That's uh, yeah, it is a great line. That's a good yeah. little summation of Littlefinger's character there. Um, well, because you only have one note, which is that the scene is basically, yeah, just exposition. He is explaining that his relationship with the Lannisters was productive up to a point and that he decided mm. his relationship with the Tyrells could be more productive in the future. And so he decided to get in with the Tyrells. And one of the things that they asked him to do was play a part in this incident that Sansa's currently running away from, that little wedding incident a couple of weeks ago. Um, Lizzie, can I ask you then, now that the pieces are kind of there, what do you think happened to Joffrey? Um, well, other than being poisoned. Other than being poisoned, yes, 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 yes. Um, how do you think his poisoning came about? I would not be able to tell you. I think maybe um, because I was, you know, I mentioned in episode two that uh, Lady Alina gives Tyrion this look when he's about to pass Joffrey the wine. So yeah. possibly she had the other jewel and the poison was in there. I don't know. Yeah, I think that now, because we completely skipped over it when we were talking about King's Landing, um, the, hmm. the, the scene itself with Lady Olena um, talking about how um, she basically didn't want Marjorie to marry that beast quote unquote um yeah and that uh, she was never going to let that happen and then in the same episode Littlefinger sort of saying that he's friends with the Tyrells so all the textual evidence is there now so I can basically talk you through what's happened in the background and it's one of those things where if you go back and watch YouTube videos you'll be like oh how did I miss that or whatever so basically mm. uh season four episode one Sir Dantos Hollard hands Sansa that necklace and he says oh um you know, it was my, it was an, it's an old family heirloom. We know that's bullshit now, but like, you know, Sedantos is like, oh, it's an old family heirloom, and um, I'd like you to wear it in my wedding because you saved my life, and blah 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 blah. And then before the wedding, you were actually no, it's during the wedding feast. You were completely right to notice that Lady Olena had said something that was. Um, uh, killing a man at a wedding is just awful or something like that, you know, when she was talking to Sansa about Rob. Mm. While she's doing that, she unscrews a little gem from Sansa's necklace. If you watch the scene ah. back, the camera doesn't focus on it, but you can see her do it. She, like, takes the little a little bit of a gem off Sansa's necklace, and that gem contains the poison. And so, okay. obviously, we don't see her put it in the glass, but we do see her later insist that Tyrion, you know, that, that look, it's like, oh, go on, give him the glass. And then she pulls off, and then while Joffrey's choking to death, 
um, she pulls off this Oscar-worthy performance where she says, Idiots, help your king! Help the poor boy! Um, just brilliant stuff from Lady Olena there. And then the pieces start to come together a little bit when you find out that Littlefinger was aware that Sansa was going to try to escape. And then Littlefinger, in this episode, after he's killed Sodontos and bought his silence, that... Um, Littlefinger has now told Sansa that the necklace was a fake and it was a dud and that it was bullshit. And basically, yeah, Littlefinger and Lady Olena conspired together to poison Joffrey and use Sedontos as a pawn in the game so that Marjorie could still be queen and have a different husband. Amazing. Because I'm, I'm just thinking now, because Tywin has surely promised the Tyrells, that one of them would be wed to the king, right? Oh, yeah. Didn't, I'm, I'm sure he didn't specify which king. So, um, yeah. Tywin has walked into a trap of his own making with this. Oh, Tywin. And now, I mean, we can talk about that king's... <laughs> now we're sort of... I was I was leaving it out of the king's landing stuff because now that the full mystery's out there, we can talk about it a little bit more. In this episode, mm. Joffrey's body's barely cold and Lady Olena has already told Marjorie, get to work on Tommen, do it now, because Cersei will try and get in ahead of you, but if you can get in and start influencing him, this is going to be very easy and we will essentially be in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, wow. I, and I love the scene uh, where Marjorie comes and visits him at night. Um, she has a beautiful bedside manner. I really wouldn't mind being put to bed by Marjorie Tyrell, just kind of like saying nice things and a cat would also you know a cat is you know cats also make nice purring noises and it's all very relaxing and yeah it's good 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 uh good marjorie tell as good good uh, marjorie tyrell asmr <laughs> uh, i know what you mean but do you not also find that scene a bit weird uh well i guess it's one of those things which is like it's just kind of the way that the story is. I think they've 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 done their best, which is you know part of the reason why they recast Tommen is that they've recast him so that he's at least played by a sixteen year old. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this is a thing with recasting people. Uh, the the kid who originally like at the start of the story, Tommen looks about seven. So at the moment yeah, he he's does, about. Yeah. So at the moment he's about. 12 maybe 11 or something like that but in the show Mm -hmm. i think you're just supposed to pretend that tommen's like 15 at this point it like he was he was like 12 at the start but the kid just aged very slowly and so we've aged him up (laughs) and no one look and it's fine it's all it's all a bit icky but it's totally fine (laughs) well even if he's 15 and with marjorie's what 21 ish yeah yeah still kind of like don't do that oh it's still icky although to, oh god is this where i talk to you about what how old people are in the books um oh fuck no. yeah they've aged up uh well i was telling you about this like they've aged up daenerys john mm. all of this and uh yeah daenerys is like 15 in the books and if you consider some of the stuff yeah. that's happened to daenerys in the books yeah <laughs> Uh, and in the show so far uh, so yeah this is just another example of the show trying to not completely avoid the ick factor but making it slightly more palatable for TV viewers which is that again it's just a depiction of the situation which is that Marjorie is now betrothed to a 15 year old kid 
and they just kind of have to show that and that's it's just where the story's going and they're definitely not saying that it's right it's just the way that it is um and we get some funny scenes out of it which is that like i love how like tommen is under guard cersei has made sure that tommen is under guard and like the daughter of the actual assassin that killed joffrey can get in at night undetected or just be allowed through yeah. it's really really funny um <laughs> but uh yeah i think it's more of a depiction rather than endorsement sort of situation in fact it's definitely that yeah, I mean, you you say viewers, I'd, I'd more be thinking commissioners. I'm sure they wouldn't be best pleased with portraying that sort of thing on television. So you do have to walk a fine line with that. It's one of those absolute no's, you cannot do this. We will not air it if you do that. Yeah. But even then, you know, if like you say they've, they've aged Tom and up, but it still just doesn't doesn't sit right it's really fucking weird i think it's made weirder because he's he's even he's just so innocent and he's in bed for god's sake yes like fuck it if they've just met like i don't know randomly in the gardens then sure why not but she comes into his bedroom late at night sneaks past one of the guards to actually get to him it's like fucking hell yeah there's a power imbalance there which again is part of the story which is that marjorie doesn't really have any great affection for tom and it's just that she has great affection for wanting to be as she said the queen yes and this is her easiest way to do it and as much as the tyrells are really fun to be around um there's a funny little line in this episode, um, Lady Olena saying that she has to take one more stroll through the garden and she'll fling herself from the cliffs. That's a little joke about the fact that loads of people after season three were saying, so is Lady Olena ever going to leave that garden? Because that all of her scenes are in that garden. But like, they're funny to be around and Lady Olena's got an attitude and we love her for it. And like, she'll say things this week like, oh, I was very good and all of this. And Marjorie is sweet and kind, and but she's also they're also very cunning and they have also basically just conned their way and now poisoned their way into full control in the capital. They're so deceptive like this. And I think this scene is another one of those where it's like Marjorie kind of breezes in and she wears those lovely flowy dresses and she has this really lovely velvety voice and she's never going to hurt somebody directly. And there is an element of innocence with Marjorie because... um, you know, she didn't really have any idea that Joffrey had been poisoned by Elena. But all of the things that she does, Marjorie, that she tricks us just as well as she tricks everybody else, which is that when she goes and visits that orphanage at the start of season three, and it's like, oh, isn't Marjorie really nice? Like, and like the idea to donate food to the local orphans and all the things like that. How much of it is real and how much of it is for show? And that's the constant game with Marjorie. Yeah, yeah. And... I that's what I love about her where it's like it is she's playing the game just as much as anyone else and seducing Tommen and bending him to her will is mm. another level of that game let's see what you can do hold it you just watch for now I can fight have you ever held a sword before I was the best archer in our hamlet <laughs> I was I believe you we'll go hunting for rabbits one day Right now, watch and learn. You two. Take it slow. Try and disarm each other. To Castle Black, where I don't have many notes either, but uh, 
seeing how popular John has become with the Night's Watch brothers, Jan Oslint and Sir Alistair decide to send John on his mission to Craster's Keep. John rounds up some volunteers, including Locke, who's arrived from the Dreadfort, and he's on his secret mission to find and kill Bran and Rickon, and that's it. He rounds up some volunteers with an impassioned speech, and we'll see how they get on in the future, whenever they head off to Craster's Keep. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I've put, Locke has arrived, worth keeping an eye on him, good speech from John, actually, Funny how Locke offers his right hand and then jokes that he would rather lose his hand. Yeah, he he knows what he's doing. He's a he's a bit creepy because he you know he's like Roose Bolton. He he's got that sort of cunning mentality in that you can just play sort of mind games with people and you wouldn't even know it's happening. You wouldn't know that he's one of the representatives of the people who killed your brother. Yeah, like. Yeah, that's that's quite it's quite a skill. Um, right, you know, Ramsey Snow did the same to um, to Theon initially when he when you know he told him, "I'm taking you back to your sister," and I was surprised you're at the dungeon again. <laughs> um, well, I think that Locke has also benefited from the fact that at Castle Black, once you're there, you leave everything behind. Mm. If you don't have loads of high-born baggage coming with you that everyone's aware of, you can basically just lie and invent a new story for yourself. And Locke has taken advantage of this, and his story is that he was just a dad trying to feed some kids, and here he is. And it's a very believable story, and clearly John has fallen for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, we'll see where that goes, shall we? Um, I quite like the speech from John, uh, considering most of this is basically original material. Um, I think that they get to the, you know, the writers, obviously they've been writing him for three and a half seasons now, but like they, they really get to the heart of the leadership qualities that John uh, believes that he has and the leadership qualities that make people want to follow him. Um, I did want to mention, though, that I do like the comparison between John and Daenerys in this episode because they're the two characters who are out for justice. But yeah. Their ideas of justice are basically just revenge and they're saying that they're justice and they're hoping that if they say it's justice enough, then it'll just become justice. Mm. And it's interesting to watch that, I think. And, you know, we'll see the development to this over the next week or so. Um with how Daenerys's idea of justice is interrogated and how Jon's idea of justice might be carried out when he heads beyond the wall to Craster's Keep. Um, but yeah, just an interesting little footnote in this episode. I don't think it's a major theme in this episode that brings it all together or anything like that, but it's just a, a nice little touch and a nice little footnote that in an episode that's kind of slow um, and maybe a little bit marred by uh, the elephant in the room with Jamie and the violent excessively violent stuff that we'll talk about next mm. um i think that it's just nice that at the opposite ends of this story there are two characters who it's just nice for the it's just nice that the show manages to draw a line between two complete polar opposites in the show and well they've had a kind of similar beginnings if you think about it like they both came from pretty much nothing like they had to start all over again you know Daenerys mm. with Carl Drogo and Jon Snow with the Night's Watch. It's that kind of... They're both... um, 
and and you know since then they've both lost things as well Daenerys almost well she did lose an entire army before she got a new one um John lost his father his brother um the love of his life arguably um you know mm. that may not I know this is kind of a banal point but yeah, there are points of com- comparisons between the two. I can see why the show would want to highlight that. But that doesn't yeah. mean they're not very different characters. Oh, no, totally different. Um, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, no, it's nice. I, I do think that, you know, I mean, uh, maybe the, and that there are more, um, you know, it's like it comes back to that question I think I've raised before. It's this idea of how far will you go and how far is too far in pursuit of the greater good? And I love little plot lines that come back to that question because mm. we saw it a lot in season two where there were discussions between Talisa and Rob Stark about, um, like, you know, he, all these people are dying, but what for? And then what when you've won the war, what happens? Yeah, but what happens then? And lots of characters with ideas about what they want, but then very little idea about what comes afterwards. Mm. And if they achieve what they want, how much are they going to lose to get there? And when they finally crest that hill and finally get what they want, what's the plan? And it's just, I love that kind of question. It's, um, and I love it when it comes up in these little storylines where even though this John stuff is completely show original, it's still sticking quite true to that question, I think. Carl Tanner from Gin Alley. Drinking wine from the skull of Gior, fucking Mormon. <laughs> Any command for us, Lord Commander? What's that? Fuck until that dead. Do you hear that, boys? Fuck until they're dead. At Craster's Keep. Bran and co. are captured by Carl Tanner and the rest of the mutineers who killed Geo Mormont, and they are overseeing a scene of real misery and depravity as they eat Craster's food and rape his daughters. Um, Craster's last son is born and offered up to the White Walkers, who take it deep into the forest and far out beyond the wall. And once there, we meet a new White Walker who presses his finger to the baby's face and turns its eyes blue. So, Beyond the Wall, um, yeah, the misery and depravity, yikes, uh, it's too much. Um, Carl is clearly drunk, Mm. but he's barely a person. He's just acting out, but still barely a person. It's kind of funny, the dialogue's pretty funny, the accent's pretty good. Um, He seems like he's happy to turn into another craster, who is like, when he just sort of doesn't really think twice about handing the baby over to the White Walker, doesn't really yeah, think yeah. twice about killing the baby. I, I did uh, have that in my notes, actually. It's funny how, you know, they, they went from killing Craster because they were so sick of his bullshit to basically turning into him. Yes. Yeah. No, I think yeah. it's a really good... Uh, it's it's the one interesting thing they do with Carl Tanner, I think, this week. I don't really care about his backstory. Uh, no. But again, this is just like one of those things where, like, this two or three episode period is kind of like a holding pattern where there's just some stuff that they've realized, oh, we should probably take care of that. So we'll take care of it in these episodes and they'll just kind of take care of it. And so part of their taking care of it is 
building Carl Tanner's old backstory in like three minutes around this scene of just like just abject misery and like mm. I, you know I, I appreciate the abject misery in this show the the I like the fact that it pushes me and challenges me makes me feel like shit sometimes makes me feel like there's no hope um you know like we were talking about um you know where is the hope in the show not really a lot to s- cling on to uh, I think you were messaging me this week basically saying that where like all the characters that you want to sympathize with are either dead or like um or ha- you know have been killed like Rob Stark or whatever or are at the bottom of a jail cell like mm. Tyrion or didn't well in in the story didn't rape somebody last week but because of the way the TV show put it raped mm-hmm. somebody last week and so and where else have you got to look oh I know let's go beyond the wall to Carl Tanner drinking wine out of the skull of Gio Mormont. And it's like, okay, like, yeah. okay, I think you're enjoying this a bit too much, lads. It feels a bit um, just kind of misery for misery's sake. It doesn't feel like it's got any deeper point. Um, and sometimes, you know, it doesn't have to have a deeper point. Sometimes, like, it can just be miserable. But I think that the, the deeper point, really, is that we have to make this guy as evil as possible because he kind of did as a favour last season by killing Craster, kind of led to the death of Joe Mormont, but that was kind of like an unhappy accident. But like Carl Tanner, we liked him for a bit because they quickly kind of built him up in that episode and they did some quick, efficient, good character work on him where they turned him into someone who was capable of being pissed off by Craster, crime of passion, that's mm. fine. But yeah. this feels like a little bit like it's extended the crime of passion and it's just kind of like, oh, he's just a complete psychopath who drinks wine out of skeletons and yeah and decides to fuck up till they're dead and all that and it's just all a bit like too much he isn't a real person he's kind of like he's been turned into an action figure not a nice action figure and they're doing it for a reason and it's because john's gonna go head to head with him at some point and like they need to sort of like make it so again it's kind of like this idea of john's justice we kind of have to be with him on this road to justice if you if you will and mm. so if they make cartana normal <laughs> then it might you know but uh and then of course bran ends up in his hands and there's this whole thing where like um like oh that's fine leather oh i could do this to you and oh no not bran not in his hands oh no and then we have to watch them poke hodor with sticks and just because, why not? Let's just take the most innocent character and just kind of throw him in the mud and make him really miserable. And yeah, why not? Fine. And like, I mean, it does a good job of like setting up the scene as like a, just a horrible, dark place that you would never want to go, filled with death, filled with ghosts, that sort of thing. But it just tips over the edge for me. I can see what they're going for, and I think it works to a degree. But I think all the stuff like fuck up till they're dead and all that is just like what are you doing guys like it's rain it in (laughs) i'd say simultaneously too much and not enough you know because in like the actual setting of the scene is horrifying by the way literal rape happening in the background thank you for that shot guys appreciate it but beyond that the actual dialogue between carl and uh rass it's like an Oasis recording session. There's there's no substance there. It's all bravado. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh my they're just, god! Yeah. They're just t- they're just bigging themselves up like I'm sure they were doing before. But 
there's no kind of semblance of what they've been up to during this time. It is just, oh, fucking this, fucking that. It's like, is this all you've been doing in the nine episodes between the last time we saw you and this? Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, they've just been sitting around raping people, waiting for Craster's last son to be born. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no like character oh. development there. It's more just, here's Carl, he's gone a bit mad. John's going to come along soon, don't worry about it. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think it's one of those where it's maybe one of the first times in the show where I could probably not tell you what's going to happen next week, but you've kind of got the picture. Yeah, yeah. Like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just they've set it up so much and they've built it up so much that there's only one way this can go. Because exactly. there's no story with Carl Tanner. It's like he's just a comic book villain and, like... Say next week, Carl Tanner cuts Jon Snow in half. Like, where mm. does the story go from there? <laughs> you know? Well, that's it. It's not because it's not like they're looking for revenge. If they were, they'd go to the fucking wall where they all are. But instead, yeah. I think it is just they're at Craster's Keep and they're sort of celebrating the fact that they're making things slightly more difficult for the Night's Watch. Yeah. They're just, they're just being pests. Basically, <laughs> uh, yeah, people weren't really that happy about this at the time either. Uh, you mm. are not alone. Um, yeah. A lot of people initially weren't happy because oh, it's a deviation from the books. You're not allowed to do that. But oh, under the sake. you know the undercurrent of that is that it's not just a deviation from the books. It's the it's just not a particularly good deviation from the books. Like there've been deviations from the books in the past. Like Talisa Stark is a whole deviation from the book. Um, Locke himself is a deviation from the book. The Aya and Tywin stuff is a massive deviation from the book. So it's always exactly. been there. Yeah. Um, but this is just not the best example. Um, but speaking of deviations from the books, um, mm-hmm. the final scene of this episode is like earth-shattering shit. This, I remember like um, not when this episode came out, but like reading about this episode in the aftermath because I watched it about a year after it came out. There were so many people of like it's one of those situations where like if people who'd never read the books were confused, they would consult people who had read the books to sort of go, okay, what's happened? And the people who had read the books would normally go, okay, well this, 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 and this, blah, 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 and this is what's happened. And it kind of happened in the aftermath of the Red Wedding, where lots of book fans were on hand to kind of be like, oh, well, you know, this happened, and uh, mm. it it came from this long ago, and this is what'll happen now, etc. But with this, it was like show-only people went to book readers and they were like, okay, so who's this new White Walker? And they were like, we, 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 don't, we don't know. We don't know. Because <laughs> obviously you never see anything from a White Walker's perspective in mm. the books because obviously they're not POV characters. They don't speak. But like, yeah, this, this, this for me is a real solid indication of the show just sort of going... We have got our own ideas because like with the White Walkers so far up to this point have kind of like wandered about beyond the wall. There's no real sense of organization. We've seen their army formed once, but mostly they just kind of wander through the forest by themselves, taking babies. We didn't really know what they were doing with the babies. It was implied that they were like eating them or doing some weird magic shit to them. And it turns out that the weird magic shit is that they just get turned into more White Walkers. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, yeah, good, but the thing in the scene really is that we have this kind of general white walker who 
is the leader of the White Walkers, and that there's like 13 White Walkers, I think, and like this one lead guy. Um, I know that you know his name, which is just that he's the Night King. Yes. Um, the name is based on an old book character who died about 10,000 years before the story started, who was co- who was known as the Night's King, or mm. but it's like some weird mythical tale stuff, whereas the show just kind of comes forward. I can't remember when he gets named as the Night King. I think it's a little bit when a, when a character actually says the Night King and refers to him as the Night King. But, yeah, um, it's an indication from the show that, like, the White Walkers have a hierarchy and they're organised and there's actually a plan here. It's not just, like, sitting and sort of waiting around and sort of, like, you know, maybe they have a mission and what what is the mission? We don't know yet, but at least they have one and they have someone to answer to and they're even though they're weird mythical creatures, they understand the concept of not democracy but feudalism you know that they understand human systems and like uh political systems and hierarchies and things like that and it's just uh i think it's i think it's a really good scene it's like a little bit of a reveal um and it's just yeah it's just it's just a cool a cool scene with some cool monsters and why not (laughs) Uh, what do you make of this stuff beyond the wall didn't like it as much as you i thought it was well shot don't get me wrong like they i mean these scenes always are but it's um it's more that it feels like we've been here with uh the white walkers before where we've seen them it's like oh shit it's happening and then you don't see them again for another six episodes then one shows up again oh shit now it's happening then you don't see them again and now you see in this one you don't really have any indication about who the night king is or why he's important it's kind of implied somewhat but other than his little you know the little crown spikes on his head there's nothing really to to cling to i'm sure this would have been exciting if you were um kind of a reader like you just mentioned you yeah you've seen this thing that you don't know what it is and you don't know who he is but it it fell a bit flat for me this it didn't work all right then yeah no no problem at all yeah i mean it also didn't help for me i don't know if you, you might not agree with this that's fine but he doesn't look that much different to the other White Walkers. If he was this like grotesque monster, like nothing else he'd seen before, I think it would have been that reveal would have been huge. But yeah, he just he just looks like another White Walker. Um, yeah, I think they're kind of relying on the fact that he doesn't have long scraggly hair, and that he actually wears armor as well. I guess is a little bit of a difference because um, the White Walkers don't tend to wear armor. But, um, yeah, I think they're kind of relying a lot on you believing the close-up shots and things like that, and the fact that he has the power to turn them and things like that, but uh, to turn natural humans into White Walkers and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but yeah, I suppose you get the answer that Craster's babies basically just became meat in the White Walkers' army, and maybe generals in the White Walkers' army, and that was why Craster was able to keep himself there for so long. It was kind of like a bargaining effort. Um... So, yeah, but that, that that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, so that was the end of Season 4, Episode 4 with uh, Oathkeeper. Um, what's your line of the episode, Lizzie? Um, my line of the episode is from Grey Worm, who says, A single day of freedom is worth more than a lifetime in chains. 
Okay then, yeah. I think, yeah, that's part of one of the best bits of the episode and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, right, so who is your loser this week? Uh, yeah, loser of the week's Carl Tanner. Re- refer to previous discussion. No, surely not. Surely not. Unbelievable, I think that's very unfair <laughs> on Carl Tanner. He's just trying to do his job of drinking wine from the school of G.O. fucking Mormont. And here you are, spreading all your misery, calling him a loser. What are you yeah. like? Yeah, hey? normal normal guy. Yeah. <laughs> and who's your winner? Who's your winner? Uh, winner of the week is Grey Worm. Cool. Like, I, like yeah. I said before, I was just really impressed with his performance. Really nice to see him get not quite a starring role, but, you know, he's he feels like a central piece of Daenerys' inner circle now. Mm. And yeah, so it should be. All right, then. Awesome. That's a good kind of left-field choice, I think. That's uh, a not-obvious choice, and I'm Mm. glad that you've picked him. Uh, Right. Next week, we have got Season 4, Episode 5, which is entitled First of His Name. wonder what happens in that episode. Mm. And uh, we have, after that, our interview with Eric Anthony Nolan, who played uh, Wildling Extra on the show and is also the tour guide for the Game of Thrones tours in Northern Ireland. And then after that, we'll be just carrying on with season four. So thank you very much for tuning in this week. We'll be back next week and uh, stay safe until then. See ya.